Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. We're several weeks into summer, and I have to say that I had really hoped that by now, life would feel a little more predictable, that COVID-19 would have faded into the background for a few months while the weather was warm. But of course, that hasn't happened. The number of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. alone is approaching 120,000, and we're starting to see resurgences in places like Florida where things have opened up. It doesn't feel any easier to make plans for the future now than it did a couple of months ago. So on today's episode, I'm talking with someone who can help us navigate this pandemic summer. My name is Jose Luis Sanchez. So the name is Sanchez. The game is preventive medicine. I am a public health preventive medicine specialist who has specialized in infectious disease epidemiology while working with the U.S. military for 41 years of my life. In my position as deputy chief of the Armed Forces Health Surveillance Division, I look at policy issues for the DOD, for the Department of Defense, looking at diseases and injuries. So I am originally from the great state, soon to be state, maybe territory so far, of Puerto Rico. And I am very glad to be here today with you talking about COVID-19, better known as SARS-CoV-2. Before we continue, I need to give the disclaimer that Jose is not representing the Department of Defense or the U.S. military establishment. I put a full disclaimer in the show notes for today, but it's important to note that the opinions you hear in this interview today are Jose's alone. Since mid-March, Jose has been working almost exclusively on COVID-19. So I took this opportunity to ask him all the things I've been wondering about over the course of this pandemic. I've read the CDC guidelines, but I wanted to know how an expert was navigating this time for himself. Regardless of the phase that a particular state or county is in, I think we have to get used to a new normal. And that new normal is when we go outside of our homes, we need to make sure that we're wearing cloth face masks or coverings. We need to make sure that we observe social distancing, especially when in crowded locations. And we need to get used to increased personal hygiene, sanitation habits, such as frequently washing our hands with soap and water. And when we travel, try to travel in small groups, preferably by car instead of by plane, so that you can have control over the extent of possible exposure. We should make it a habit from now on until this virus comes under control and I feel it will not come under control. It will continue to surge in spikes till we have a national vaccination program, which we will not have before the spring of next year. We're talking about a period of at least nine, maybe 12 months until we can relax these measures. Do you find it concerning that in a lot of places in the country, People have kind of just gone back to the way things were before. Do you, do you think we'll see a spike because of that? 
not only do I think we'll see a spike, but like Dr. Anthony Tony Fauci has stated, we will continue to see spikes in different locations where individuals are beginning to engage in crowding conditions where they're going to significantly increase their risk of acquiring this virus. So we will continue to see spikes. I am very worried about that. This virus is not going to go away. I believe this virus is going to become endemic. That means it's going to become a natural part of our environment. Uh, it's going to be carried by people for a long, long time, probably for years, even in the presence of a vaccination, because no vaccine is 100% efficacious. One of the reasons I believe this virus will become endemic and cease becoming an epidemic year in and year out, because I think we will reach a level of herd immunity. Uh, when I talk about herd immunity, what I'm talking about is having individuals having uh, sufficiently immune antibodies and immunity to the virus to the level that we get 60 to 80% of the population becoming immune to this virus. And once we reach that, we will see cases happening, but in very few numbers. And this is based on experience with other viruses where the same thing has happened, such as with influenza viruses of different kinds. The last pandemic we experienced was that influenza A, H1N1 swine flu pandemic. And that virus still circulating, but in low amounts throughout the world. But the population has reached such a level of immunity that it's now not a pandemic anymore. It ceased being a pandemic in August of 2010. I do believe, based on that and other viruses that have caused epidemics and some have caused pandemics, that when they become endemic in the population and the herd immunity is sufficiently high, that plus the vaccination efforts uh, I really do believe there will be, if not one, several vaccines that will be administered nationwide and in other countries by the spring of next year. There is a huge effort, not just on the part of the U.S. government, but other governments. Uh, there are about 160 different vaccine constructs that are being looked at, and of those, there appear to be three or four right now that are being heavily invested upon by the U.S. government for their development and uh, final use as a universal, some type of universal vaccination program, hopefully by the beginning of 2021. I don't think we'll see them become a reality until maybe February or March of next year. On the subject of herd immunity, for, for people who say, why not just let COVID-19 run rampant and then we all get herd immunity? What do you say to that kind of thinking? The answer is simple. I think it's ludicrous to think that we should let people get infected because as we have seen so far, there have been at least 120,000 deaths in the United States alone. I don't think you can talk to families and people that have seen loved ones die from this virus and convince them, let's nature take its course. Now, I think we should continue to practice 
the new normal, and then we will have to reevaluate once a vaccine or vaccines come into play, depending on the results of those vaccination programs, whether we relax those measures or not. So it's a new normal. We need to get used to it. I disagree with those that I think that we should just let nature take its course and relax because people are going to die. And people are going to die in big numbers. The latest predictions are that uh, we may see before the fall of this year as many as 200,000 deaths in the United States. That's within a period of six months. That's three times as many deaths as we see with a bad flu virus. With a bad flu virus, you see about 60 to 70,000 deaths in the United States. What do we know at this point about how the virus actually spreads? This is a virus that spread by close proximity through airborne droplet transmission, principally, but not exclusively. You have heard about the six feet rule. That's your main source of risk, but it can also be transmitted by fomites. That means by people touching contaminated surfaces and then putting their hands in their mouth or their nose or their eyes. And we also know that the virus lasts for at least a few hours and sometimes a couple of days in different types of surfaces. So even when you are covering yourself and avoiding being in close contact with others, you have to be careful about the surfaces that you touch. The other ways that are being examined that potentially could become important is the fecal-oral route from aerosolization of feces, as happens when you're flushing toilets. We know that the virus can be found in blood for a very limited amount of time, and it can be found in saliva. I would not be surprised at all if in the near future we find transmission via the sexual route because the virus can find its way into seminal fluid. I would like to see more data before I discard the possibility that that could be a mode of transmission. Alameda County, the county that I live in, just mandated that even for people exercising, like going for a bike ride or a run, you have to wear a mask. And I've wondered, is that a little extreme because, you know, if I'm passing somebody on my bike, I'm passing them for like two seconds. I'm more than six feet away from them. Or even if I'm not, it's so quick that I'm passing by. Am I being too cavalier about it to think that that's a little extreme? So I am of the opinion that you are not being cavalier. I share your opinion that if you're in an open space, whether you're running or trotting, because I cannot run anymore. I barely (laughs) trot. But I never wear a mask when I'm trotting because when I encounter somebody, I'm not blind, so I can see people that are coming towards me. Sometimes I miss the ones that are coming behind me, and of course they're running faster than I am. Not much I can do about that because I'm old. But having said that, I think you do not need to wear a face mask or a cloth face covering if you are running out in the open or if you're biking out in the open because the dissemination of the virus and the dilution of the virus, the potential for you acquiring 
or actually infecting somebody that you encounter on a running trail, it's negligible. And I will extend that, not just to biking and running, but also when you're in your car. When your windows are down, so that you're diluting any potential virus that you're putting out into the air. If you are driving with your closed windows, then as long as you're within your family group, with the people that live with you day in and day out, then you don't need to wear a mask either. But if there is somebody that gets into the car, then you should wear a mask and that person should wear a mask also. And what about for people who are feeling freaked out about getting the virus from their groceries, say? I mean, is that a legitimate concern? So that is a legitimate concern, and it's very simply taken care of by you ensuring that after you put that fruit or that item and bring it home, the first thing you do upon entering your home is washing it well with a hypochloric solution or with just soap and water, and then washing your hands with soap and water. So you got to make sure that those food items are clean, and you got to make sure that your hands are clean. The first week of this podcast, I shared that my friend Annie was being tested for COVID-19. Her test came back negative, but the doctor who read her chest x-rays thought that her test was a false negative. A few weeks later, she took an early antibody serum, which also came up negative. I asked Jose both about the antibody serum and the COVID-19 tests to try to get a sense of how reliable these things were in detecting the virus. In terms of the detection of the virus itself, not the antibody, but the virus now, the tests are pretty good, but the problem is that in many cases, there's not enough viral load in the respiratory tract or when the sample is taken. Maybe you're taking the sample too early in the course of the illness of the individual so that it's negative when actually the individual is infected. And then when you're talking about RT-PCR, you're talking over 95% sensitivity and over 98% specificity. In other words, if you get tested for COVID-19 when the viral load is high enough, the tests are pretty accurate. But Jose says the antibody serums still have a long way to go. At best, they're 60 to 80% accurate. There's good data to show that those that are 19 years of age or, or less are less susceptible to infection than uh, adults that are 20 years of age or older. There's nothing magic about the 20-year-old barrier, okay? It's gradual. And that has to do with the fact that there is decreased susceptibility to infection or serious illness among children that probably results from cross-immunity from other coronaviruses, or it could be because they have anatomically less capability to be able to acquire the infection. They're also at a lower risk of serious complications if infected. So I think in terms of the very young children that go to daycare, there are ways that you can limit transmission in those settings. I don't think those should be shut down either, much like I don't think schools should be shut down. Our schools open up in August. We still don't know what that's going to look like. They're talking about smaller class sizes, maybe only just a couple of days a week. 
I think schools uh, should reopen in the fall, offering as many options as possible for internet or web-based education. Schools are needed, but there should be social distancing and personal hygiene rules that will minimize the risk of infection. We will not be able to stop it completely, but minimize transmission in a school setting is possible. Here we are in June. It feels really, really hard to make any decisions about anything right now. Like my parents are asking me, are you going to come to the Midwest this summer? Are you going to get an airplane at the end of July? My answer is a straightforward no. I'm sorry. Tell your parents and your family and relatives that because of the ongoing threat of transmission and acquisition of the virus, I really think it's still high enough threat to warrant us being conservative. That's part of the new normal, I think. COVID-19 has affected different populations differently. What are your thoughts on why black and brown populations are being hit so much harder than white populations? So there's a combination of factors that come into play. First of all, black and brown populations are in general and lower socioeconomic status. Now that varies between cities and regions around the country. But in general, that is true. Number two, There are many brown and black populations that do not have ready access to health care as much as white populations do in the United States, and that's well documented. And third, and probably more important than the previous two reasons, conditions that lead you to be at increased risk of infection or suffering from severe disease, such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease and hypertension and obesity, are much more prevalent in brown and black populations than they are in white populations. There needs to be a widespread commitment from public health authorities and political leadership towards increasing knowledge and access to better nutrition for these populations so as to avoid conditions such as obesity or diabetes, for example. And last but not least, probably more important than all, is making sure that we can extend access to work so that these populations stand a better chance to confront the pandemic because everything revolves around the economy, really, when all is said and done. And if you don't have money to pay insurance, you are at a distinct disadvantage and you are at a distinct increased risk of suffering from severe COVID-19 when and if you are infected. So simple as that. It's an inequity that we see in society. I am not a politician, but I do believe there needs to be a National Health Care Act that ensures ready access to medical care for all. I know that it's a politically a hot potato, but it's paramount for us to find ways in which people that don't have access to care get access to care. There needs to be something akin to the Social Security Act. There needs to be a health care act that ensures uh, universal access to health care, much like we do in the military. I don't know if you realize that the military is one of the few populations in the United States that gets universal access to health care. So we have almost 10 million active duty and beneficiaries that 
get taken care of by the military health system every year. Whether you're having uh, a cold or whether you're pregnant and having a baby or whether you need some major surgery for some major condition or you need emergency care. It's accessible and it's free of charge to members of the military and their dependents and family. The political will for our leaders to uh, take action, much like they're taking action now in terms of police brutality and enacting laws towards mitigating that problem, they should take action now to make sure that there's equal access to care by all in the United States, by all populations. We need to make sure that we talk to our uh, political leaders and uh, make sure that they understand that it is uh, extremely important for uh, them to enact laws that allow universal access to health care so that individuals that are at risk uh, can be taken care of, not just for the sake of COVID-19, but for the sake of so many other conditions that tend to be more prevalent and lead to serious complications and death and higher mortality and disadvantage populations that don't have access to health care. I'm slowly adjusting to the idea that we're going to be in this new normal for a while, that this pandemic summer isn't going to be the one I'd planned. But I've come to realize during this time that sheltering in place isn't just about quarantine. Wherever we are, there's a lot that we can do to make the place we're in feel like a shelter. We can make time and space for community and creativity. We can find our way to courage and hope. Whether our shelter feels like a cage or a sanctuary has a lot to do with the small choices we make every day. The things we choose to put our hope in. The people we reach out to. So the daily sanity today is to accept the new normal and to choose to let this time be a shelter. If you found today's episode meaningful and listen on iTunes, Stitcher, or any platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you appreciate about the show moves us a little closer to being able to make this work sustainable, not just now, but in the future. Shelter in Place is grateful to be sponsored by Delta Wines, the refined daily drinker with a social good built in. These California wines are fresh and approachable. Perfect for casual dinners at home. For every $15 bottle you buy, Delta donates $1 to fighting climate change. Buy online at winesforchange.com and use the code SHELTER to get 10% off. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode, as well as ways to support us at laurajoycedavis.com. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kimsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.